Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. At the age of 36, on the verge of completing a decade's worth of training as a neurosurgeon, Paul Kalanithi was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. One day he was a doctor treating the dying, the next he was a patient struggling to live. And just like that, the future he and his wife had imagined evaporated. And uh, what makes a life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future, no longer a ladder toward your goals in life, flattens out into a perpetual present? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? These are some of the questions that uh, Kalanthi wrestles with in his profoundly moving, exquisitely observed memoir, When Breath Becomes Air, which became a number one New York Times bestseller. Paul Kalanthi died in March of 2015, and uh, we're talking this hour with Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, the widow of uh, Dr. Kalanithi. He's the uh, author, of course, of the When Breath Becomes There, for which she wrote the epilogue. She's an internal medicine physician and faculty member at Stanford School of Medicine, and she is coming to present the uh, convocation for the 2017 Common Literature Experience at Utah State University. That is Thursday, August 24th, 9 a.m. in the USU D. Glenn Smith Spectrum. That's free and open to the public. Dr. Uh, Lucy Kalanthi, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. We appreciate you uh, being on with us. Um, very moving book, very very important uh, as well. It's really struck a chord. Maybe we could start with uh, the response that you've gotten uh, in, since the book was published. Oh, it's been so interesting and amazing for me. The, um, Paul's memoir was published in January 2016, so it's now been out for about a year and a half, and um, I'm still getting to talk about it publicly, which it's almost hard to tease out just from how personally helpful that's been during a time of grief, you know, to get to keep talking about my person. Um, mm. It's just wildly meaningful. And then it's been really interesting because I think, you know, Paul was writing about dying. He was a neurosurgeon who was diagnosed with terminal cancer and then shared the experience of being a physician and a patient. But I think, you know, it's interesting, I'm coming to Utah State University to talk to these college students, too, not about dying, but about living. And I think that's been a really fun, interesting part of it is that, um, you know, really we're talking about meaning and what faces all of us in our lives, not just not mm. just dying. I think so, someone who perhaps has not been through dealing with this, uh, going through grief, uh, might think uh, maybe we don't want to talk about it, but it is helpful, cathartic for you to talk about it, talk about Paul? Oh, I think so. It's been really interesting, actually. I think I kind of feel like oftentimes when somebody dies or something really terrible happens, we um, we don't bring it up with other people. You know, um, Sheryl Sandberg just wrote that book, Option B, where she talks about her experience in that realm where she kind of felt really isolated in addition to feeling so sad because um, people didn't really know how to talk about it. And I think, for me, strangers walk up to me and ask me to tell them about how I met Paul or what was important to Paul or how did we choose to have a baby and these various things where it's like, you know, even when someone dies, you're so hungry to say their name and you're so hungry to get to keep thinking about them. And so, um, and, and not just about even the circumstances of their death or whatever, but just them in general. So for me, it's, been, it's taught me something about how to, how to approach someone else who's grieving in the future. I wonder if you could, I was watching a TED Talk. You talked uh, movingly uh, about uh, how you and Paul met, how you fell in love with him. One one thing that stood out to me is he apparently is a very funny man, carried a gorilla suit in his trunk. Yeah, yeah. Um, he used to keep a gorilla suit in the trunk of his car, and he'd he'd make this joke that it's for emergencies only. <laughs> and um, it just he was just so funny, and he um, uh, it's funny because I we we decided to have a child after Paul was pretty sick and 
he had this gorilla suit that he'd had for years and years, and he would, like, pull it out on various occasions. He went to spend a whole day in London wearing a gorilla suit. Um, and then he was really ill, and the gorilla suit was sort of tattered and falling apart, and I was like, I think I need to get rid of this. You know, like, we're having a baby. We've got to make some room, and he's, you know, I'm nesting. <laughs> i got to get rid of this gorilla suit. And as soon as I threw it out, I got an Amazon Prime, like, email in my email that said, your, your order of large gorilla suit has shipped <laughs> and Paul had like ordered another gorilla suit and he was like too sick to ever put it on and have any hijinks in a gorilla suit. But I think he just couldn't stand not, mm. not having one in the house. <laughs> you write in, the, in your, in your <laughs> epilogue, um, that, uh, even though technically unfinished when he died, uh, the, the, you know, the book stands, uh, as, as it's presented, but you're right that uh, it doesn't present all of the man, and and so that's it was interesting to to hear about more about him. Um, what you also talking about the TED talk about how why you fell in love with him? Why did why did you fall in love with him? Um, you know, I fell in love with Paul I, when I first met him. Uh, I knew he was really smart. I we met in um, at medical school at Yale, and he had all he had not even ever thought he was going to be a doctor. His father was a doctor, but Paul thought he would study literature and philosophy and then maybe end up in an academic philosophy or English department and then surprise himself by wanting to enter medicine and sort of really grapple with issues of life and death face-to-face and not in a philosophical way. Um, but we were just talking about how Paul was a really funny person, and one of the first things I knew about him and what you know gave me a crush on him initially was his medical school ID photo, um, his student ID, he was wearing a fake mustache in the, in the photo. <laughs> and he'd been a comedy writer and a sketch comedian in college. And I think he was really scared that medicine was going to sort of change his, change who he was in these fundamental ways. But I think it does. I think it does make you more serious. And it, it does make you, you know, tired and stressed. And, um, you know, I think he wanted to really ensure he retains his humanity through that process, which... Um, the fake mustache was not just him being hilarious. It was. It was. It felt like sort of an acknowledgement of holding on to, you know, his humanity. Mm. Well, he he opens the book saying, "I I knew certainly I wouldn't be a doctor." <laughs> it's, a, it's funny right. how, what where right. life takes us. Um, and he he was very seriously into literature, right? Advanced degree in in literature. That's right. Yeah, he studied English and history and philosophy of science and literature and science and medicine. I'm sorry. Um, and I think books, you know, it's funny because um, I think Paul was just really interested in approaching sort of the big questions about what it means to be human. You know, how do we uncover meaning and what does it mean to have a human body and a mortal body and a brain and then be somebody who's out in the world trying to make meaning and try to understand how to live, um, you know, in a, in a, you know, approach the human condition in a, in a finite life. And um so I think actually his interest in literature doesn't seem to me to be in stark contrast to his interest in medicine. I think he was just interested in um, the human condition, and I think those are both ways to get at that. Hmm. Why did he decide? How did he make that decision to eventually to to go into to medicine, and then a very demanding specialty, neurosurgery? So I think what happened initially um, is, and Paul describes a little bit about it in the memoir. Um, he. Uh, he enters Stanford as an undergrad wanting to study literature. And then he's sort of going through the course catalog and keeps finding that he's drawn to neuroscience classes, which, you know, he didn't think he was into science, but he became really interested in meaning and then in thinking about 
the human mind um, and, you know, how do we, how do we make sense of our lives? And then he kept sort of accidentally circling neuroscience classes in the course book because it was like, well, if the mind is what gives rise to, if the brain is what gives, gives, if the brain is what gives rise to our minds and our meaning, then, then how the heck does the brain work? And what does it mean that, you know, the brain is just an organ in our bodies? Um, but yet it's the source of our entire identities and, and lives. And so he sort of accidentally fell into neuroscience and then um, sort of followed this path where he um, started to visit, um, you know, healthcare centers or visit um, neurology patients and then sort of get into the thick of what it meant to actually have a brain and then have your brain break. Um, and, and he was incredibly interested in neurosurgery ultimately because he... Um, you know, to operate on such a sacrosanct area of the body, to think about operating on the brain, you know, as human tissue, but really as the source of memory and identity and feeling um, is such a mind-boggling idea and such a great responsibility that I think it felt both intellectually really fascinating to him, but also just sort of deeply moving to be, you know, to have that privilege and to have that responsibility. So, um when when we first met, he was going to be a psychiatrist, actually, um, out of a similar love and interest for for the brain and for people going through a crisis. But I think the technical aspect of neurosurgery was utterly intoxicating, and um, mm. so he fell that way. Hmm. Interesting. That I guess the the challenge, the technical side of it. Um, mm-hmm. what, what kind of a doctor was he with with patients? How how did he? What kind of a doctor was he? You know, there are all kinds of doctors interacting with patients. How how was he? Um. So he was lovely. This was another thing I actually really loved about him, actually. I remember um, in medical school, he stayed. He would stay for hours with this one patient who had a really bad form of esophageal cancer and who, you know, whose life was totally disrupted by losing the ability to eat. And Paul would stay for hours after um, the work was done talking with that man and sort of about his experience and what it had done to his identity and his enjoyment in his life. And I... I was kind of like, oh, come on, guy, like, you need to get home and hang out with me. You're done with your day. But at the same time, I just, he really was a lovely doctor in that way. He was very, very interested in the experiential piece of illness, you know, like not just the technically what illness does to your body, but um, the ways in which it disrupts your, your identity. And, um, and that turned out to be a huge challenge when he himself became sick. There was the challenge of facing mortality, but then there was also the really rough thing about even if you don't know how long you have left, you still are grappling with your day-to-day identity immediately um, and the way in which your illness has changed that. So um, but he was a really kind, um, uh, deliberate, sweet <laughs> doctor. And then meanwhile, he's also like a bustling neurosurgeon. You know, I think he, he had to kind of reconcile a couple pieces of his identity and, and pace. Hmm. I want to talk a bit about um, talking about cancer talking about any serious illness he he i mean you might have thought you're a couple of doctors um it might have been a little easier for for you guys but there's a scene in the book where where you you uh, i guess look over your shoulder or glance over and he's on his device uh, looking up um information on i guess uh, what stage four lung cancer or something and, and that provokes a conversation about why are we not talking about this Oof, that was, um, that was right before Paul got diagnosed. He had started to lose weight unexpectedly. He was having really severe back pain. 
and um, but was working really hard. And that was during a time where in our marriage we were less connected than we wanted to be. I think, you know, that's a, it's a really sad thing when you're married and you feel lonely. I think that's one of the most painful experiences. Um, and so we, our marriage was kind of on the rocks at a period of time right before he was diagnosed, and it all came to a head a few weeks before the diagnosis came. And then I wrote in the epilogue to the book about how Paul's cancer diagnosis was like a nutcracker, and it sort of got us back into the meat of our marriage. And I wouldn't say it was responsible for saving our marriage. I think we really had all the um, substance there. But, um, but yeah, it was a tough time. I think we weren't totally, um, you know, we'd stopped giving each other the benefit of the doubt. I think the, the stress on our marriage because of our work lives was so great. And then... Um, and then we had developed the ability to connect right before um, he was diagnosed. And he said this beautiful thing to me right when he was diagnosed. One of the first things he said was, I want you to remarry after I die. And it was so crushing. I mean, it was like the, the last thing you want your spouse to say to you is that they, they want you to marry someone else. You know, it's so wildly shocking. I can't imagine a more shocking thing to say in a way. But, um, but it was super generous and it was really honest and it sort of set the tone for the way that we would talk about his disease. And I think, I think saying I want you to remarry after I die is also clearly he's acknowledging immediately that he understands the likely outcome of that illness and also that he's willing to say it out loud and talk about it and to be really generously committed to what that also means for me. And, you know, I think being doctors, we were both pretty knowledgeable about the likely course of the illness but um, and, and aware of how important it is to go through it together rather than sort of side by side in isolation. I think we were very devoted to trying very hard to talk about it, honestly. Hmm. What would you say to, to people going through a similar experience, you know, to couples? The, it seems like you two were able to talk very openly uh, about, uh, you know, about his approaching mortality. Yeah, I mean, I found that really helpful. I think it's interesting because, um, because I have a lot of patients reach out to me, actually. I'm part of the lung cancer community now, obviously, um, especially on social media. And then me being a physician, too, I have a lot of people contact me when they get diagnosed with lung cancer, and they say, you know, like, who are the best doctors and what should I be thinking about? And then I have people contact me later in their illness as they're getting more sick, and they contact me to say, you know, here's what's happening in my shifting health, and what am I supposed to do now? And I think um, I think it's partly because people are... Um, I've heard a lot of people searching for, like, how on earth do I talk to my family about my fears? And then if I want to be shifting gears in my medical care and sort of shifting the balance of prioritizing quality over quantity of life, maybe, like, is that a brave and good decision? And how do we reconcile that with, you know, this idea of, um, you know, fight, fight, fight? Like, what is that? I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of sort of complicated things about illness and the narrative we see in the media or elsewhere is like, it's a battle and we're going to win it and we're going to always look on the positive side. And I think people carry around a lot of fear um, and complexity and depth about the way they think about their illness. And, um, and I think if we can kind of go through that part together and, and be talking about those hopes and fears in a really complicated, deep way and not just in a simple metaphor or whatever, I think, um, I think that's when it's most helpful. And so, um, but, you know, I think some of that sometimes just starts with, like, sitting at your kitchen table and saying what you're most afraid of um, mm. and hearing what the other person's most afraid of and just starting from there, you know. 
And that, I think that fear or, or whatever it is does block a, a, a lot of us a lot of time. In that TED Talk, you, you said, uh, you talk about this phrase, if I had a choice. You got to say that uh, many times care doesn't match people's values because people haven't made those values clear. They haven't said it out loud. Yeah, isn't that interesting? There's all this interesting information about that. Like, um, there's something like a quarter of people say that they or a family member got excessive or unwanted medical care. And it's like, you know, we're afraid you think about doing like your advanced directive paperwork or your, um, uh, you know, talking over your healthcare wishes with your family. And I think one interesting thing is people feel like they're trying to save their family fear or pain. Um, but if you do, if you do have those conversations about your wishes at the end of your life, you're more likely to have care in line with your values and be satisfied with your own health care, but you're less likely for your family to have depression or PTSD, um, which is really interesting. You know, I think um, doing it for your family is another reason to talk about it, actually, is that um, they're less likely to be confused or um, even traumatized by what happens in your health care. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking uh, this hour with Dr. Lucy Kalanathy. She's the widow of the late Dr. Paul Kalanathy, author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, When Breath Becomes Air, for which she wrote the epilogue. She's an internal medicine physician and faculty member at the Stanford School of Medicine. When Breath Becomes Air has been selected as the USU Common Literature Experience book, and uh, Lucy Kalanathy is coming to Utah uh, to give the convocation in the common literature experience. Uh, that is on Thursday, August 24th, 9 a.m. in the USU D. Glenn Smith Spectrum. It's free and open to the public. More with Lucy Kalanthi following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Logan Regional Hospital Women and Newborn Center, offering childbirth education, labor and delivery services, and postpartum care. Details on these and other services at loganregional.org. Along the banks of the Nile River, Egyptian farmers grow bananas, cotton and rice, but have no use for the leaves and stems left over from harvest. Much of this material is burned, a practice that leads to air quality problems and public health concerns. But biological engineers at USU see a solution. They've developed a way to turn that unwanted plant waste into something useful. Through a process called catalytic pyrolysis, the material is broken down and made into oils or polymers that can be turned into bio-based plastics or everyday goods like home insulation, adhesives, or oil-based paints. Support on Utah Public Radio for Creating Tomorrow is provided in part by our members and the College of Engineering at Utah State University, offering undergraduate and graduate degrees in biological engineering. Information at engineering.usu.edu. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. At the age of 36, on the verge of completing a decade's worth of training as a neurosurgeon, Paul Kalanathy was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. One day he was a doctor treating the dying, the next he was a patient struggling to live. His memoir, When Breath Becomes Air, which was published following his death, became a New York Times number one bestseller. It's an unforgettable, life-affirming reflection on the challenge of facing death and on the relationship between doctor and patient from a brilliant writer who became both. We're talking with Paul Kalanathy's widow, Dr. Lucy Kalanathy. 
she wrote the epilogue to the book. She's an internal medicine physician, faculty member at Stanford School of Medicine. She's coming to Utah as a part of the USU Common Literature Experience to give a convocation, and that will be happening Thursday, August 24th at 9 a.m. in the USUD Glenn Smith Spectrum, and that's free and open to the public. I want to talk about about how, uh, how Paul uh, handled this. He would he you know s- studied this. seemed to seem to be drawn at least to some books on uh, on death, inextricability of of death and life. But of course, it's one thing to read about it; it's another thing to come face to face with it. And he writes something interesting. He says, "Coming face to face with my own mortality, in a sense, it changed nothing and everything." <laughs> right. Right, he says something like, "I still knew I was going to die. I just didn't know. I still didn't know when. I just knew it acutely." Um, I wonder after you get the diagnosis, and mm-hmm. and and Paul writes in uh, about that walk, uh, in which becomes uh, mm-hmm. leaves off doctor and becomes patient, and he goes into the room where he's where he's talked to patients before, even given hard diagnoses to to patients, and then he's in that same bed. Uh, what's, what's the conversation between the two of you then? You know, you, you realize this is probably, you know, he probably doesn't have a lot of time left. Well, I'll tell you something interesting I remember about that day. Um, so Paul, like I had said, Paul had been losing weight and having a number of confusing, alarming symptoms, like severe back pain and night sweats. And we both had the idea, he like, we had a really serious illness and we didn't yet know what it was. And then he had a chest x-ray that showed um, nodules in his lungs. And it was pretty clearly probably metastatic cancer, maybe tuberculosis or a couple other rare things. And when we were packing to get ready to go to the hospital, I was packing, you know, the health insurance card and the phone chargers and socks and stuff. And Paul packed a pile of books, actually. Um, uh, He packed literature and philosophy of medicine and and a novel called... um, Cancer Ward by Solzhenitsyn. And then we went to the hospital, and Paul didn't look at those books while we were there. They were on that little side table in his hospital bed. But it was really interesting because it had been the hospital he'd been working in as a doctor for seven years, and he'd been reading neurosurgical casebooks and doing operations in that hospital, obviously. And then suddenly he enters the same hospital as a patient for the first time, and instead of taking textbooks, he's there with literature. Um, and philosophy. And I think it was so interesting just to see him reach for a whole different kind of tool, you know, to see him bring those Mm -hmm. books was this real um, indication that it wasn't the medical knowledge that he was going to need to get him through that time. It was going to be, it was going to be literature and, um, and pulling on what it meant to be a human being, not what it meant to be a doctor. And I think it was interesting to think, you know, um, we had so much medical knowledge, and that was really important and gave us a huge advantage for coping and, and care. But at the same time, the big upheavals in identity and the big challenge of facing dying, I think, you know, being a doctor doesn't prepare you for that. I think he had much, much more in common with other patients than he, than he thought he might. That's wonderful that he had that, right? Uh, not everyone has that, the mm-hmm. love, love of literature, that, 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 those things that he could turn to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, authenticity. You write very movingly in your in your epilogue uh, that the, he didn't have false bravado. And you mentioned earlier in, in this conversation that sometimes we, you know, we we 
it's kind of a bravado. We say we're going to fight this, we're going to win, you know. Um, but you talk instead of a bravado that he had authenticity. Uh, you underwrite uh, that allowed him to grieve uh, the loss of his future. He cried. He let himself be open and vulnerable. Let himself be comforted, um, which I'm sure made made the made his death a lot better than it would have been. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that was so um, striking and that I really admired about Paul was he really authentically faced kind of the fullness of what was happening in his life. So, um, you know, and when he was dying, he acknowledged that that was the case, and he kind of entered into that really fully. And I think writing a memoir about the experience is obviously a really giant example of that. But I think back, too, to this conversation we had um, when we were trying to decide whether we were going to have a child during that time, um, we knew that Paul had a limited prognosis and we'd always wanted to have children around that time. And um, we talked about whether we would still do it. And we did end up um, having a baby daughter who's now um, just turned three. And I asked Paul during that time and said, you know, I'm, I'm really worried that, um, first of all, having a newborn could take away time we have together. And it's a, it's a huge challenge for our family and for her, obviously, growing up. But I'm also worried that for you, having a child to have to say goodbye to is going to make dying so much more painful for you. Um, and he turned around and said, well, wouldn't it be great if it did make it more painful for me? And that idea of, you know, really willingly accepting um, the fantastic joy of having a child, but also knowing the pain that that brings, really crystallized for me Um his acceptance of that full range, um, that it was okay to have a child, um, that, and that, you know, nobody has a child because it's easy. You know, you do it because it's meaningful to you and because it's a big part of what it means to be human for many people is to raise another person. And I think um, that was something I just really loved about him. I think that authenticity um, is really tied up in that sort of real openness to, to suffering. Yeah, that was surprising to me too. I hadn't expected that. When, you know, um, wouldn't that the response? Wouldn't it be great if you know, if, if it did make it's it lovely, uh, more right? painful? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was your what was your side of that conversation? You you talk about having a having a baby. What did I'm sure you maybe had some concerns there? Yeah, totally. I mean, Paul, we had wanted to have children together, so that part was true. And then Paul was much more certain about wanting to do it still. I think um, I had a couple of reasons that made it. I mean, obviously I knew I would likely be raising the child by myself down the line. And even more immediately, my sister had had really tough postpartum depression twice after having both of her sons. And she's written about it publicly. Um, she's a blogger. She's a blog called Cup of Joe and she's written about it. And um, so I was worried it, sort of immediately about um, the possibility of depression and what that would mean for my ability to take care of Paul or to connect with Paul during the time that he was dying. So that was kind of a practical concern. And then, um, and then I was just worried about how, you know, when you have a baby, you are, um, you're inviting a lot of uncertainty, you know, pregnancy is a really tumultuous time. And then you never know um, all the challenges that could come with having a child. And I knew we would be inviting pain for our child to be growing up without, um, Paul, and I ended up reading, actually, the book Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon. Um, I'd heard him interviewed on NPR and then went and sought out the book, but that book is about many, many families, um, 
see interviews in which a child is really different from the parents, whether it's through a disability or a, committing a crime. Um, but he talks about the ways in which parenting is really challenging, and, and the vast majority of the parents he interviews say, my life is much harder for having had this child, but it's also deeper and richer, and I'm a more resilient person because of what I went through with this child, even though I'd give anything to take away the pain my child has had um, you know, from him or her. And it's, it really underscores this ability to you know, um, cope with and grow out of pain. And I think I was already starting to get a sense of that possibility because of the way that Paul's life and my life were being transformed by his illness. And it was sort of like, oh, wait, I think actually this is something that people can handle doing. And this is something that we can handle doing. And so to read that book, it wasn't like I figured out a way for having a child to be easier. Um, but it did suddenly seem tenable um, in a way I hadn't totally grasped. So I think, And then I think we were really lucky because then we decided we wanted to do it and we were able to have a child. And that was, um, she was, she was eight months old when Paul died, um, which was excruciating, but also just really, truly wonderful. Hmm. What was what was that interaction like? It is from things I've seen. It it seemed like this was it's a very joyful thing for for Paul to to have Katie with him for for the, that time. It was amazing. It was so wonderful. It really. Um, it, I can't even overstate how fantastic it was, and I also think it like there was something really nice about having a newborn and not knowing how much time you would have left at all with the newborn. Um, I think so much of the time where we go through our lives wishing away time, you know, and I think especially with a newborn, it's like, Oh my goodness, I cannot wait till she's going to sleep through the night or I can't wait until she can actually talk. And for us, it was like, we were completely focused on the present. Um, you know, not even intentionally. It's just like the present truly was the only thing that was promised at all um, for our little family. Um, and I think that made having a newborn even better. Mm-hmm. We were just totally steeped in who she was at the time. And um, the, the last paragraph of Paul's memoir is a is written in the second person directly to her as kind of a love letter to what she meant during that time and, um, and even about the nature of time um, during that time. Um, so I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that she'll be able to read that paragraph mm-hmm. when she when she grows up and understand what she did for him at that, in that time. That's very moving. I, I don't know if you have the book with you. Um, I do. If, yeah. if, if you do, could you, could you read that? That's, it's just, uh, um, Oh yeah, sure. And that, 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 that will be a treasure to, to her and, you know, treasured all of us, treasured her specifically when she's able to read that. Sure. I'm really happy to read it. I actually, I actually don't have to read it. I haven't memorized. Oh, you do. Oh, you do. Cause I've read wow. it so many times, uh-huh. but this is in the, in the last portion of the book, Paul's talking about time and how he used to think of time as kind of a linear progression. And now he thinks of time more like a space. The fact of, um, his relationship to time became totally different when he was dying. Um, but he says, um, to Katie, uh, when you come to one of the many moments in life where you must give an account of yourself, provide a ledger of what you have been and done and meant to the world. Do not, I pray, discount that you filled a dying man's days with a sated joy, a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, a joy that does not hunger for more and more, but rests satisfied. In this time, right now, that is an enormous thing. 
Yeah, that's that's very beautiful. That illustrates uh, not only the themes that we're talking about, uh, the 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 fact that in to me this is a little bit melancholy. I don't know for you as well. What a good writer Paul was. There might have been other beautiful books from him, you know, but but for the the illness. Right. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking uh, this hour with Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. She's the widow of the late Dr. Paul Kalanithi, author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, When Breath Becomes Air, for which she wrote the epilogue. She's an internal medicine physician and faculty member at the Stanford School of Medicine. When Breath Becomes Air has been selected as the USU Common Literature Experience book, and uh, Lucy Kalanithi is coming to Utah. Uh, to give the convocation in the Common Literature Experience. Uh, That is on Thursday, August 24th, 9 a.m. in the USU D. Glenn Smith Spectrum. It's free and open to the public. More with Lucy Kalanthi following this break. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, we talk to the pioneering research psychologist Anders Ericsson about how to get really, really good at just about anything. With the right kind of training, any individual will be able to acquire abilities viewed as only attainable if you had talent. 10,000 Hours, Malcolm Gladwell, and more. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. She's a widow of the late Dr. Paul Kalanithi, who's author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, When Breath Becomes Air, for which she wrote the epilogue. She's an internal medicine physician and faculty member at Stanford School of Medicine. Lucy Kalanithi is coming to Utah as a part of USU's Common Literature Experience. She's giving the convocation on Thursday, August 24th, 9 a.m., in the USU D. Glenn Smith Spectrum, and that event is free and open to the public. I wonder what was you, let me find this, you, you write uh, what your expectation was when, uh, when uh, he, he died. Uh, you, I think you were, you're expecting to be, uh, you know, just it's devastated, bereft. I'm sure you felt some of that, but, uh, but there were some, some good emotions as well, you say. Oh, yeah. This was really interesting. I mean, I think I knew after Paul died I was going to be crushed and sad, um, obviously flattened. But I think I hadn't quite realized the way in which the way that I love Paul and all the positive feelings I have about Paul, like being proud of him or being happy for him, um, seeing the book come out or whatever, that stuff persists so forcefully. And it's it's almost like, you know, it feels good to be in love. And I still have all of the dizzying, warm feelings that I have because I'm in love with Paul. And so I think I hadn't quite understood how that part would continue to. And now that the sting of losing him is lessening somewhat, um, those other feelings are not lessening, which is really wonderful. And I think also the feeling of um, being compelled to do for him, um, which, you know, now includes kind of having done this book tour for Paul, um, there's this amazing C.S. Lewis quote that I put in the epilogue to the book where C.S. Lewis wrote something like, um, bereavement is not the truncation of married love, but one of its regular phases, like the honeymoon. 
And then he says, um, what we want is to live our marriage well and faithfully through that phase two. And I really feel, I really connect to that idea that bereavement is a phase of your marriage um, uh, that requires, in a way, just as much work on my end as um, the other phases of the marriage required, um, and just as much commitment to Paul. So um, that's been really interesting. And meanwhile, it's like all the, uh, my other emotions around grief surprised me too. Like I was much, much more anxious than I thought I would be. Um, C.S. Lewis also said uh, something like it, it surprised him how much um, grief felt like fear. Um, he says it in a kind of different way, but I was so anxious. I had this really severe tingling in my hands after Paul died. I think the physical symptoms and the, the broad away, array of painful emotions was um, pretty surprising too. That puts me in mind of a, there's a, there's a scene from the movie Shadowlands based on C.S. Lewis's marriage with uh, mm-hmm. Joy Gresham, and where she's she's uh, she's diagnosed. They they know she's uh, probably going to die. You know, within the next couple of years, they go on a nice trip together, and she forces him to face. You know, to talk about it, and she says the the, the you know the pain then is a part of the joy now. And then at the end of the movie, he says the you know that what he learned from her was. That uh, the you know the joy then is part of the pain now after she's mm-hmm. passed. Just in- yeah, right. It's like that linked. idea. People say grief is the flip side of love. Yeah, uh, and I think you. I think this is a quote from you. Said, Being human doesn't happen despite suffering. It happens within it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder. Uh, you uh, you write also about uh, you know aftermath. And uh, Paul's buried in a in a place that's, uh, I guess, a little bit uh, you know harder to get to than a, a cemetery downtown, but that you go you go frequently, and um, and think of him. Uh, so I wonder what what your what your experience has been there, and what what advice to, you would have to people to to continue that to continue that connection to continue to remember your your loved one um, in, in in the best way, the appropriate ways. Yeah, and I think this is different for everybody, of course. Um, so Paul's buried in a grave that's actually really close to where we live. Um, it's just a few miles away. And for me, it's really helpful to have a physical place to go. Um, Paul actually didn't dictate what would happen to his body after he died, but um, he he's buried. I think in part, in my mind, um, we chose that family and I chose that in part because uh, all, many of the great writers he loved were buried too um, in the Western tradition. So that sort of in a way felt like a little homage to that literature as well in a way. Um, uh, but he's buried on a hillside that um, faces the Pacific Ocean and it's really beautiful and it's not always great weather and it's um, there's a lot of crows and deer and snails there. And our daughter loves going there because it's sort of really nature steeped. And she, she's only three. She doesn't know what a grave is. Um, she just knows she might see a deer or whatever, but um, <laughs> she's a real participant in physically visiting. But I, I really find it helpful to have it as a touchstone, as a place to go. Even if I'm just feeling kind of unsettled, um, I think going there physically, I'm sort of able to connect with um, Paul and the, um, I don't know, it's almost like meditation or something, like just the idea of putting aside a place or a time um, to be able to do some of that 
mental and emotional work, you know, and it's not even, um, it's not even active necessarily. When I go there, I'll find that I, sometimes I kiss the air. I used to do this thing with Paul. Like if we were across a room from each other, I would sort of like kiss the air, almost like blowing a kiss, but only with my mouth. And I'll, I'll do it at the grave actually, or I'll kind of like whisper nicknames for him, um, that we use together that I don't whisper anywhere else, but, um, the physical sense of his grave and his body being there, like makes me kind of automatically or inadvertently do these things that, um, sort of highlight to me how connected to him I feel there. Um, so that's really helpful, I think. Um, it can be hard to to cultivate that emotional work kind of by accident. You know, it's not like you can necessarily sit down and say, like, well, now it's time to feel sad and, like, do some of that processing. Mm-hmm. But I think having a grave for me, it does some of that, mm-hmm. um, gets me in that space automatically, obviously. What did you, what was your conversation with, with uh, Paul about uh, Katie? Obviously he knew that uh, that she, you know, probably wouldn't have... Maybe wouldn't have memories. Eight months old when when he when he died. What was, you know, he wrote to her specifically. What were those conversations like? What to, what did you two want uh, to the memory to be um, when she got old enough? Um, you know, we didn't talk totally explicitly about exactly which things I should impart to her um, from him. I think we both were very focused on the practical aspects of writing the book, like the the race against time to finish the memoir um, was really kind of real. Um, everything from like titrating his medications so that he could concentrate on it or timing the writing around his appointments. You know, I think we both knew that the memoir was a way for him to communicate directly to her. And I think some of the messages in the memoir are around things like um, striving for purpose or, striving to be a good person. And I think, you know, and, and it's also, like you say, uh, uh, some of it's directed directly at her. And so I think insofar as you teach your kids, you know, I love you. It's important to try hard. <laughs> it's important to be good. Like those, those messages sort of permeate throughout the memoir as things that Paul was striving for. So I think he's in a way giving those messages directly to her too. Um, and then I think he spent a lot of time like preparing me to be able to cope and also um, really strongly forging relationships um, between our families and his parents and his brothers are totally involved in our lives. And I think that was actually a huge comfort to Paul and a really important thing that Paul was trying to cultivate um, sort of leaving the work and even the message to us, but um, giving us the ability to do that together, you know, what was what did the writing the memoir mean to him? Obviously, it's very important to him, right? And he and he uh, technically unfinished at his at his death, but he he really wanted you to to shepherd this through to conclusion. Um, what, what was what did the writing mean to him in those those last months? I guess a couple things. Um, you know, obviously, when breath becomes there is a memoir, and so it's kind of like a diary, and it's really intimate. But he's Paul was really deliberately writing it to be read um, and was really interested in grappling with mortality and the idea of facing death and then bringing the reader into the experience of what it felt like to do that really directly and immediately um, while also reflecting on what that means in terms of the bigger questions of having a finite life and building meaning in that life. And um, so I think it was a mission that Paul had had kind of throughout his life, even as a young person to grapple with mortality and meaning. Um, 
And then I think um, it was really interesting to see the way in which the fact of being diagnosed with terminal cancer at the, you know, right at the cusp of entering his academic neurosurgery career, Paul had this whole idea of his identity as a physician and a neurosurgeon, and then that completely crumbled um, in the face of the illness. Um, and to have him sort of forge this new identity as a writer and to be able to do that even when he was really ill, I mean, almost literally up until the week he died, he was writing seriously, um, it sort of showed me that um, the real power that purpose and um you know, that having a purpose has, there's um, there's this really beautiful thing Nietzsche said, I think, and I think Viktor Frankl quotes it later in Man's Search for Meaning. It's, he says, um, he who has a why, W-H-Y, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. And I really feel like that was true for Paul. I think um, one of the reviews for the book said, um, this book is crackling with life. And it's so funny because if you had seen Paul, toward the end of his life, he did not physically look like he was crackling with life. You know, he was bundled up in a chair, really still. And, um, but then his mind was really crackling. And I think it was because he was utterly purposeful um, with a newborn and with working on the memoir. And I think it just taught me how much, um, you know, as we're helping our family and friends through aging or illness, if we can help maintain their you know, personal identities and sense of purpose, however small that may be, I think it's incredibly important. Um, and that's sort of what life is all about, you know. Mm. I, I expect he would have been surprised to see this uh, be a number one New York Times bestseller. Sure. How could you not be? Yeah, totally. <laughs> How did that strike you? I guess that this gives you an opportunity to, to speak to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it is so bittersweet. It can't be overstated. So the Paul's book was on was number one on the New York Times list for three months, and then earlier this year it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And I think those things are just unbelievably meaningful and moving to me. And then it's obviously incredibly painful that Paul's not here to see them. Um, so you know, I think it's uh, I can't I don't even I don't even have words. It's like wonderful and terrible, but it's amazing because I think you know Paul really wanted to have this as as a legacy and was really motivated by that. And so, you know, the way in which you have a legacy is other people participate in, in your legacy and, Mm -hmm. and build it for you. Um, So to see that happening is so amazing. Yeah. A form of immortality. Uh, So that's, that's a a wonderful thing. Um, Speaking of, just have a few minutes left here, but uh, we were talking uh, previously there about, identities, and, and we all have many identities, right? And uh, some that we present to the world and some not, and some that we present even to loved ones. Um, and, and you write very movingly, you say, the version of Paul I miss the most is the beautiful, focused man he was in his last year, frail but never weak. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that, that, you know, it's many versions of Paul throughout his life. Um, why, why was that? Why is, why, is, why is that the one you missed the most? You're right. You know, it's funny because when you said that, I was like, oh, now I feel like I'm not even sure that's true anymore. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, I, we talked before about how Paul's memoir isn't that funny, but in real life he was super funny. Um, and so I think there are different versions of ourselves that we that we do present, or even different versions of ourselves that we are over time. Again, whether it's because of, you know, especially because of aging or illness. And I remember actually um, the 
writer and actress Mindy Kaling um, lost her mom to pancreatic cancer. And I heard her interviewed and she said um, initially she could only remember kind of the thick, frail version of her mom. And she was worried she wouldn't be able to remember the other, you know, who her mom had been at other times when she was younger. And then over time, like those other images or memories started to fill in and create this more kind of complete version of what she remembered her mom to be. Um, and I think that's true for, for me with Paul, actually. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that I like the thing that I wrote, frail but never weak, because I think um, that was a thing I really found to be true with Paul. You know, I think your body can betray you, but um, you're lucky if you um, if you remain, you know, the core self that you that you want to be even through an illness. Um, but yeah, I think who we are is shifting all the time. I think about that. I think about that with my own life too. You know, I think my identity now is so different from what it was five years ago. You know, five years ago I was married to Paul and I was on this track, and now I'm a widow and a solo parent and my medical career is really different as a result of Paul's book. And so I'm sort of like, Oh, right. Like the only constant is change. Like I, I think yeah. I, yeah. I have a better sense of that being true for my own life. You yeah. know, you, you think you're in control of your life and your choices, but um, I think that's not, that's not totally true. You said your medical career is different because of Paul's death. Yeah. I mean, just the fact of when breath becomes air being out there and me, um, being so wrapped up in it, both personally and professionally. Um, I'm working, I work half time at Stanford seeing patients um, on the clinical faculty, but then I do a lot of speaking and talking, um, like that TED talk you mentioned, about um, the personal experience of facing suffering or, um, you know, somewhat also about practically speaking, how do you, how do you find healthcare that aligns with your personal values and who you are? Because we have so many choices in our healthcare. So, um, uh, yeah, the, the way I approach medicine and the fact that I have sort of a public face um, as a physician is something totally unexpected, but really interesting and um, meaningful to me, um, but certainly not something I predicted. So you have this platform. What What's the biggest message you want to, to get out to, to people? I mean, probably various messages. What's, uh, what's top of mind? You know, I guess the one I'll, one I'll pick today is... Um, uh, you mentioned that TED Talk, but in the TED Talk, I quoted this survey by Compassion and Choices where they had asked a bunch of people, um, you know, what's important to you in your healthcare. And a lot of the answers that people gave, people would say, well, if I had a choice, blah, 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 I would say this. And it, they picked out the fact that people started their answers by the words, if I had a choice. And it's really interesting because I think um, when you're a patient in healthcare, oftentimes you do feel like things are really dictated for you or you don't know what all your choices are or you you know, you're subscribing to the battle metaphor of illness because it's the only one that's out there. And I think the idea that there are a lot of nuanced choices or that you can weigh quality and quantity together, um, uh, you know, and all the all the fear around palliative care, I think, is a big one um, that fits into this question. But um, I think the idea that your healthcare really can support you and your values. And as an example, um, Paul had a palliative care physician who, when he was um, writing the memoir, worked with him to um, so he could take a stimulant medication and be able to focus uh, while writing. And that was just so amazing. I mean, it wasn't like that medication wasn't FDA approved that way, and it wasn't going to make him live any longer. But the idea that his healthcare team was really listening to what he was actually trying to accomplish in his in his real life 
um, is really powerful, and it's part of what I think is so interesting and fun about um, being a physician. So um, I guess that's one thing I uh, I think about a lot. Yeah, important message. Uh, finally, you, you, you write, um, for much of his life, Paul wondered whether he could face death with integrity. In the end, the answer was yes. Very important question. If, if each of us is not thinking about that, we probably should. I wonder what you would say about you know, the, the so-called good death. Sounds like Paul was, uh, as we mentioned before, authentic, let himself be vulnerable, but but faced it with integrity. Yeah, and it's like, the phrase the good death is so funny. Like, people talk about the good death, and it's like, nobody not wants to die. You know, it's like, I think in a way, what people really want is a good life up until the end. And I think that's probably what constitutes a good death, really. Um, and I... Um, I wrote somewhere else in this essay in the New York Times about how, you know, Paul was working on this book and we had a newborn and we had all these things going on. And I actually feel like he didn't die leaving behind everything he wanted. I feel like he died having everything he wanted. And that feels like a flip side, right? That feels like a really wonderful thing. And I think, um, uh, you know, I think the thing that um, I've seen that makes people able to face their dying authentically or with some degree of acceptance is um, feeling as if they've lived in a way that was authentic um, to them. And so anyway, I guess that's, um, that's sort of where I feel like Paul ended up, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And that's a good place to uh, to end the conversation. We've been talking with uh, Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. She is widow of the late Dr. Paul Kalanithi, author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, When Breath Becomes Air, for which she wrote the epilogue. She's an internal medicine physician and faculty member at Stanford School of Medicine, and she's coming to uh, Utah. Uh, she's presenting the convocation for the uh, 2017 USU Common Literature Experience, and uh, you're welcome to come to that. Uh, it's at the USU D. Glenn Smith, uh, Smith Spectrum, uh, Thursday, August 24th, 9 a.m., and that's free and open to the public. Uh, Dr. Klonathy, it's, uh, it's been a, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was such a treat. Thanks. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour... Home recording studios and music mixing software have made it affordable for talented musicians to produce and distribute their own music. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for a new groove, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.